This is Bonjour Chai, your source for ideas and conversations related to the Frozen Chosen. I'm Avi Feingold, and together with Melissa Lansman, Ilana Zakon, we're here to guide Canadian Jews through the week's highlights, lowlights, and northern lights. All right, well, it's our first episode. Let's, uh, why don't we let the audience get to know us a little bit. Um, Melissa, tell us about yourself. So I'm Melissa Lansman. I'm in Toronto and I was born and raised here, just a little north of here in the in a in a suburb. Uh, I am reluctantly, you know, reconstructionist, uh, a reconstructionist Jew. I'm politically conservative and I'm a huge uh, Toronto Blue Jays fan. Uh, what I do for a living, I'm a PR exec, and I'm really excited about uh, about putting this podcast out. Amazing. Alana. Hello. Where are you? I am currently in Vancouver. I was born in Toronto, raised in Montreal, and I live in Vancouver. I'm kind of all across the map. Um, and I'm an actor by profession. I do theater, film, and voiceover work. And I also sing and write music. You know, you have to have all the hats in this profession. Amazing. Um, I'm in Montreal. I'm Avi Feingold. I run an organization called the Jewish Living Lab. It used to be called the Jewish Learning Lab. We're getting a little more expansive these days. Um, I run cocktail workshops. I, uh, I'm kind of an entrepreneur rabbi. Uh, and I mean, I do life cycles. I do fun stuff like that. But uh, I like to podcast. And uh, this is going to be hopefully the voice of, for all Jewish Canadians. I know the thing that people have been buzzing about the past few days since we put up the trailer is where are the Jews in Antigonish. There are Jews in Antigonish. I don't know if you guys know that. There, there must be. That. There's Jews everywhere. There's Jews everywhere. <laughs> We want to hear from those Jews. We want to be the voice for those Jews. Um, and we want to report on the stories of those Jews and hear their stories as well. Um, so hopefully over the next little while, we'll get to know you guys better. You'll get to know us better. Uh, and uh, this will hopefully be an amazing conversation about current events, uh, eternal events, all sorts of fun stuff. Um, and that's it. What are you most excited about, guys? I love the idea of having a conversation um, with Jews across the country. We're, we're a bit of a mixed bag here on this uh, on this podcast. And I'm looking forward to hearing sort of those stories about how you connect uh, to Judaism uh, wherever you are in this country. We want to hear it. Excellent. Alana, what are, what are you most excited about? I'm really excited for the interviews. I think, uh, especially right now in the times that we're in, it's so great to be able to kind of, I don't know, ask the questions that we don't normally get to ask and get some really amazing guests on the show. I'm, I'm excited to pick their brains. Amazing. Yeah, we do have an amazing guest coming up today. Before we get to that, um, let's hear some of the uh, news of the week. Um, but before we hear the news of the week, let's get to our first sponsor. So today's episode is brought to you by our sponsor, Atelier Lou Bijouterie in Westmount, Quebec. Atelier Lou specializes in custom-designed jewelry, as well as many lines, including Anzi, Deacon & Francis, Dana Bromfin, and many, many more. If you're looking to upgrade your engagement ring or pop the question, come talk to Eric and design the ring of your dreams. Amazing. Uh, I love Eric. Eric's, uh, Eric's a friend of the show. Alana, he's a friend of yours. How do you know him? Yeah, I know him a little bit. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's my mom's husband. That works. You know, it's Jewish geography. Like, we're all connected in some way, right? We do love we do love Atelier Lou. Atelierlou.com is the place where you can go and check it out all online. They have amazing stuff. Um, excellent. So, you know, let, let, some of the headlines this week have been like, you know, so a full year after this episode aired, uh, the Canadian TV show Nurses came under fire for a seemingly negative portrayal of Orthodox Jews. Uh, the McGill Student Society controversially tied a vote regarding the Uyghur genocide to Israel and Palestine. Um, and there was a saga regarding a school renaming in Vaughan, Ontario that has finally come to a close. Uh, the thing that caught my eye this week was the renaming of a street in Ajax, Ontario, right? This is a, yet another renaming. Um, 
This is interesting. So this all starts with a man named Adam Wiseman, who's been trying for months now to change the name of Langsdorf Street. Uh, the street's named for Captain Hans Langdorf, who in 1939 was a commander of a Nazi warship, the Admiral Graf Spree. He sank Allied merchant ships in southern in the Southern Atlantic Ocean, carrying desperately needed supplies to Britain. Um, he was respected by the Allied sailors because, get this, he allowed them to abandon their ships before he turned his guns on them. Right, and uh, so great. That sounds wonderful. Um, but in December 1939, his ship gets damaged. He puts all of his crewmen ashore in Argentina. He blows the ship up rather than continue a hopeless fight against a superior British force. And he commits suicide three days later, and he leaves behind a note that praises Adolf Hitler as a prophet. Interesting. Um, so, but Wiseman goes and says, listen, he may be honorable and a nice guy, um, but he's still a Nazi. <laughs> um, and I mean, so Ajax apparently is named, all the streets are named after different things that happened, right, uh, and different British warships that happened um, in World War II. They're named after uh, a lot of Navy uh, historical facts and ships and stuff like that. So it, I guess in a way it started in some way to make sense that this was the name of the, of the, of the street. Uh, but I mean, what do we think? Is this guy Wiseman right? This does not make sense. You, you don't. You, there's no such thing as a as a good Nazi. Look, like just on a on a get to on a serious note, um, you know, taking action against um, you know the glare the glorification, frankly, of of Nazis and and specifically a guy who remember fought for one of the most evil regimes in our modern history. It is a it is a good signal. It is a signal that we are concerned about hate. And uh, I got to say, like, there's a lot of people out there that say we're not, you know, the guy was peer pressured. He was just following orders. We can't reduce genocide to peer pressure. I don't know how many times people have to hear it. I don't know if we need to say it from uh, from the rooftops, but it's it's absolutely ridiculous. So good on Adam. Good on Adam for fighting the good fight. Also, I think it's kind of ironic because the town of Ajax is actually named after one of the British warships that fought against the Graf Spree. So it's a little ironic that they would name a street after someone who is completely against all the other streets that are named in this town. Just saying. That's just my two cents. Avi, where are you on this? I don't know. I just, yeah, I mean, it, it's a no-brainer that they have to rename this. I was trying to, like, game this out. It's like, okay, what's the, you know, the other side? Like, playing devil's advocate, um, should we be going and renaming streets willy-nilly whenever we want or whatever like that? No, we shouldn't, right? We should have a valid reason. This is a valid reason for renaming a street, okay? Let's, let's get that on the record. There is no such thing as a good Nazi, right? Um, it, it reminds me when I was in school, I had a teacher who, who was like, it was sort of a historical revisionist. This is like yeshiva. And he, he used to not like when people would call him Alexander the Great. He was like, he was Alexander the Pretty Good. <laughs> right? I was like, <laughs> I'd have a hard time imagining that there was like the not evil Nazi, right? Even if that was the case, even if he was genuinely a not evil guy, right? The fact that he was praising Hitler three days before he died. Oh, yeah. Um, and, you know, that's, let, let's not name a street. But the, the lesson that I get from this to take a step back. Um, and the reason why I think there's so much controversy around sometimes renaming is that we shouldn't be renaming things um, because of a negative name in the th in the um, in the a, a negative piece in the naming, but we should be renaming towards right and, and when we do those types of things and you rename torts a historical figure that is wonderful then it's easy to go find a name of a street that is relatively controversial or that has some issue and we can you know say let's rename it for a beloved figure 
let's go and say we're doing this because we love this person and not because we hated that person. Because that's the one where you're always going to be like, well, hate is not good. Hate is not good. Let's get away from that and let's start, you know, let's find somebody, you know, let's name it for, uh, I don't know, who's the most lovable guy to come out of Ajax, Ontario. And let's just, you know, give that give that person a street name and say, yes, you, you don't get to be, you know, you know, you're a good guy. We're going to name a street after yeah. you. Yeah. Uh, look, I, I think I'm, I'm just going to add one more thing here. And I just think that, you know, trying to reward what is like possibly maybe somewhere in the minutia of it, an act of courage is like a total revision of, uh, of history. And I've seen so many times in the last number of years that this country um, has sort of torn down the real history of things to, uh, to sort of rewrite it. I don't know. I just don't want to be a part of that. So, you know, call a vote to Adam. Agreed. Is, is there a time when we, we shouldn't be renaming things? Well, I don't think that we should erase history if, uh, you know, if, if we don't like it. And I think it's a huge disservice to those who need to learn about this. And there is a need to learn about this so it doesn't happen again. We all know that. Um, but I think that that message needs to, to come out loud and clear. I think the problem is naming it from the start. We should go. We should get a time machine, go back in time, and tell whoever decided to name the street Langsdorf. Nah, no good. <laughs> I'm still wondering. Like, it's got to have been a family member. Somebody was like, "Oh yeah, he was a wonderful guy. Let's name a street after him. He was one of the good of people on the other side." And let's let's ignore the fact that he was a Nazi. Anyways, all right. <laughs> so, resolve. We are we are good on this one. We should be renaming this street. There is no such thing as a good Nazi. Agreed. <laughs> Agreed. Okay. Um, our main story today is about the recent news that Beth's Head of Congregation recently announced a shift in policy, which would now allow same-sex couples to be married in the synagogue by its clergy. With us to discuss the decision is the senior rabbi of the congregation, Rabbi Stephen Wernick. Welcome, Rabbi Stephen. It's nice to be here. Excellent. Um, can you walk us through the process of how this happened within the congregation? And then we can take a backgrounder a little bit, because this has happened for almost 10 years now, over 10 years within the conservative movement. Um, how does that happen at a congregational level? So the, the conservative movement through the Committee of Jewish Law and Standards of the Rabbinical Assembly actually passed chuvot or rabbinic responsum that have allowed for same-sex um, weddings since 2006. Uh, Beth Sedek uh, in 2016 uh, did some really important uh, data collection of its own congregation as it was preparing um, for its future. Uh, rabbi Baruch Friedman Kohl, uh, the longtime rabbi, was uh, uh, looking towards retiring within a two-year period at that time. And so the congregation really wanted to understand what were the values and priorities of the synagogue and what were their hopes and aspirations for the future. And in that, um, in that study, which was broad, um, more than a thousand survey respondents, uh, several hundred, two or three hundred focus um, group individuals that were spoken to and so forth, uh, what was very clear was that uh, an overwhelming majority of the congregation was looking for the synagogue to be more welcoming, 
of what were previously marginalized communities, the LGBTQ plus community, um, uh, Jews of, of color, um, disabilities, and, and, and so forth. Um, and so those, those values were identified in that. And as they were planning for their um, future, um, they, they knew that whatever future rabbinic leadership they wanted, they wanted one that uh, would help them uh, obtain what the congregation called um, fully inclusive halachic opinions. Uh, that was the language that the that the congregation used, which I think is it's it's really beautiful language, and it expresses Bethsedic to a T. Um, Bethsedic, as a conservative congregation, um, continues to maintain uh, a fidelity to, um, to to traditional Jewish practice, but yet at the same time, by using the language fully inclusive halachic positions, um, also understood that. Um, halakha is, is a living, evolving, sometimes revolutionary process um, by which Jews um, seek to understand God's will in the world. Um, and so that's really, that's really where it started, um, was that the congregation um, identified uh, this as one of the, the core values of welcoming that it wanted to move towards in its next um, iteration of leadership. Um, and so I've been at the synagogue now for a little bit more than two months. Um, and in the search process, this was one of the questions we discussed at length. You know, well, so tell me more about what uh, fully inclusive halachic positions really means to you. Um, and, uh, you know, I basically told them at that time and every time the question was asked that I was prepared to lead the congregation towards um, full egalitarianism, including the recitation of the, the matri matriarchs in the um, Amidah prayer that we do, um, and towards uh, the officiation of same-sex weddings. Um, so it was, it was never really a, a question of if, it was really only a question of, of when. Uh, and uh, we, we formed, um, they had formed previously a task force on inclusion for the LGBTQ plus community. They had already been, since the time of the data study, they'd already been doing work with um, Pride Month and um, Pride Shabbat. Uh, they had um, uh, formed uh, an LGBTQ plus uh, a committee that was doing some programming and some engagement. Uh, but we ramped up our work to look at policies and procedures, um, training for board and staff for, for culture change, which is ongoing. Um, and the, really the, the last thing, and, and in many ways, one of the most important things uh, to be a fully welcoming community was to, uh, to do uh, same-sex weddings. Um, what we learned in the task force was is that you couldn't legitimately call yourself welcoming if you weren't prepared uh, to, um, to celebrate um, love um, under the chuppah in a Jewish way. Um, and so, um, you know, the, the process was all these different steps, strategic planning, programming and activities, engagement, um, a look at policies, procedures, training, um, and then it was just a question of when we get to this next point. Um, and at the end of the, the work of the task force, it was like, okay, this is all that's remaining. So the question is when? Um, and so uh, I worked with the ritual committee, the executive committee and the board, um, you know, to think about um, when we would roll this out, how we would roll this out, um, what were our concerns of uh, potential responses from, from the community, uh, and how would we 
um, how would we message and respond uh, to those concerns? And that's really what it was. I'm curious to know uh, what kind of pushback you have received, because it's you said before that you planned for it, and has it been what you expected, and if not, in what way? Um, well, look, change is always hard, um, and Bethsedic, um, Bethsedic historically has viewed itself as a traditional conservative synagogue. Conservative Judaism in Toronto historically has been more traditional. Um, and so I think it, you know, it, it, that's really what, what took so long, and, and it needed um, a, a, a change in both lay and rabbinic leadership to move forward. Now, that, that's not to say, um, you know, I want to be clear, uh, you know, my predecessor, Rabbi Baruch Friedman Cole, has been completely, um, you know, as a pastor, as, as a rabbi, um, he, he is fantastic and continues to be. And um, he, he loves all Jews, no matter, you know, where they are in the spectrum, where they aren't on the spectrum, where, you know, um, he just really loves people. He loves Jews. And he's always been available to be welcoming and um, accepting of individuals. Um, his particular halachic approach and stance um, is one where he's, uh, he, he doesn't see a way for, um, for there to be uh, weddings for same-sex individuals within traditional Judaism. Um, and I, I think we can respect that. Um, so, um, so really what, what, what needed to happen was a change of leadership. Um, and, and this is a natural change of leadership. You know, Bob Freeman Cole um, uh, had an illustrious 26-year career at Bethsedic. Um, and the congregation, I think, smartly understood that moment of change as an opportunity to look not just for the new rabbi, but what are the, what are the values that we want to hold to the future and what is the type of leadership we need to get us there? Rabbi, I've got to ask you, I've seen uh, a lot of this on social media. The response has been overwhelmingly positive. And I've got to ask uh, what I think many are thinking, what took so long? It, it's certainly been what I expected, but you know, you you always when you're talking about a synagogue like Betzedek, you're always like second guessing yourself a little bit. Is there something we missed? Is there some population we didn't hear from? Is there a silent minority that's suddenly gonna you know become very loud and vocal and um, and so forth? Um, and that has just not been the case. The case has been overwhelmingly positive. Um, and I can give you, I'm a data geek, right? I mean, I love tracking these kinds of things because I think data decision making is um, is, is smart. Um, so I can give you some, some data on this, right? We send out um, 4,000 emails uh, to members of our congregation and people that are adjacently connected to the congregation. We had a 65% open rate for that particular email, which is if, if you know what average open rates are for religious institutions, it's usually about 14, 15%. So 65% is like crazy, <laughs> right? So it means about 2,600 people at the very least opened and probably read the letter. Um, we received over 60, a little bit more than 60 um, email and phone responses. We've been logging all of them. Um, and out of those um, email and phone responses that we've received, all but three have been supportive and positive. And out of the three that were, that were, um, shall we say, not on board, um, two were 
um, very respectful um, in expressing themselves, and one was less than that. So, you know, 67 to 1 is not bad in terms of uh, responses. And then on social media, the, the reach, last time I checked, was um, something like 3,000. Um, but the more important figure is that there was 550 plus engagements, people who liked, shared, or commented um, on the news. Meaning engaging with the post. You didn't have 550 people engaged in the gay community that are coming to. Well, that would be pretty awesome if we did. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) That that would be that would be the best metric (laughs) of success, right? (laughs) Um, But um, but yes, engage with the post. Um, uh, 550 plus uh, post engagements of likes, shares or comments. And out of the comments, the most critical thing that I saw was really related to your question, Melissa, and that is what took you so long, right? This would have been exciting if it was 2006. Um, and, and I think that's that's a legitimate criticism. Um, I, I think the synagogue worked at a pace that was right for itself, um, which, um, you know, I mean, fortunately, this was an overwhelmingly positive response. Um, and that's always good when you're doing significant changes for community. Um, and uh, if that's if that's the, the the most critical thing somebody can say about this, I'll take that um, um, with uh, with love and and say thank you. Do you think Do you think that there's something inherently Canadian about that weight? I mean, you 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 were involved in the states for for many years. You know your rabbinic colleagues in the states and abroad, and and you know people always like to point out that. Canada's uh, is is where you know world Jewry or American Jewry was ten or fifteen years ago, and we're always a little bit slower, a little more cautious. And do you think that there's something about that to having taken fifteen years? So I, I actually Avi, I, I I don't believe that Canada is ten fifteen years behind the. I, I didn't say I said it. I know I people say that, but I just want to say that I, I don't believe that's the case, and I think that the um, study that came out about Canadian Jewry. Uh, 2019, I think it was, um, really speaks to Canadian exceptionalism um, as a diaspora community. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I don't, I, I don't understand the delay in this particular issue. Um, when I look at Canadian society in general, this is a very diverse, accepting um, community. Um, Canada was amongst the first countries for LGBTQ um, legitimization and weddings. It's one of the first countries in terms of um, egalitarianism and and, and just the larger society. Um, You know, there's just so many things that you can point to in Canadian society where where liberal values, um, uh, not as 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 a political um, element, but also as a political element, but where liberal values are really dominant in the society. I mean, the parliament, the liberal party is the minority government, but the liberal parties, plural, are 75% of the parliament. Um, so so it's um, there, there's a disconnect that I don't understand between how, you know, you talk, and you talk to a person in the shul, it's like, of course, this is like no big deal. Um, there's a disconnect between how where a person is in their secular general cultural Canadian lives and then when they walk into the synagogue right there's this expectation of the synagogue being traditional 
um, and you know traditional Judaism, and so that disconnect. I, yeah, I don't understand. It's the line that we say that it's the line we say that the shul that I in Canada, the shul that I drive to has better be orthodox. Uh, right, right. You know, the Israeli version is shul I don't go to is an orthodox shul. <laughs> yeah. So I, you know, I think I, I think that that's um, I don't understand that fully, um, but I think that what's what's happening here, and 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 I think we can look at this as a Canadian phenomenon, not as influence from something else what what's happening is is that the 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 next generation of jewish leadership which is my generation you know people that are in their 50s um, have a different experience than their parents and their grandparents uh, and what they're seeking to do is to is to close those gaps between what happens in their religious lives and what happens in their in in their other and their otherwise canadian cultural lives. Um, and so it, it, if I would point to anything, that's what I would point to. Yeah, you know, Rob, I got I to gotta also say, look, Toronto, the one of the most progressive uh, cities uh, when it comes to uh, the LGBTQ community. Um, I want to know sort of the why of the decision. Is it to attract, you know, more people to the congregation? Are you seeing people uh, turn away? What is the reason um, for all of this now? Um, I, I think first and foremost, this is the right thing to do. And that as a religious leader, we have a moral obligation to be doing the right thing. Um, so I, I'm, I'm, I, I'm not a believer that, you know, policy changes or shtick is really what drives more people to membership. I think it's about meaning. Um, and I think that um, growth in that regard is, is a slow process. Um, it, you know, and so ultimately people are going to connect with Bethsedic because it, it finds it um, a, a synagogue that inspires and enables its, its members, its community to live a meaningful Jewish life. Um, so, so ultimately, for me, this is about doing what's right, um, and um, uh, and so I, I think that doing what's right is what attracts people to sacred communities, um, and uh, being consistent about it, and and helping people derive meaning. So that's that's what I'm hoping to do. Um, I do expect that there's going to be. Um, not just from this, but from all the work that we're doing, there's going to be an outcome of a, of a revitalization and a renewed energy. And I'm hoping, uh, especially amongst younger um, Jewish adults, um, that we'll be able to connect to. Um, but, um, but that's secondary to, to, to um, what's morally, what the moral imperative is um, with regard to this particular decision. Um, and I also want to say, Melissa, um, I, the way in which we're, what we have a series of programs, um, educational awareness programs coming up in the next three weeks, starting on Monday night. Um, and uh, those programs are, one is a study of the tshuva, that, uh, the response that I'm relying on with Rabbi Gordon Tucker, um, which uh, explains um, the halachic justifications by which we're making this decision. Um, the second is a panel discussion with um, people of the LGBTQ community uh, with Yaakov Fruchter, our director of uh, community building spiritual engagement, um, which is to, to hear the real stories of people that are impacted from this. And I think there needs to be a little bit of tikkun of repair that, that has to happen um, because um, as, as, as you just hinted at in, in your comment, 
um, you know, people have been excluded um, and have been told that they're less than or that there's something wrong. Or, um, and um, we have to hear that pain and, and we have to accept it as the, um, as the lived experience of, of people from the LGBTQ community. And, we ha and, and I think that's a necessary, um, a necessary element of being able to move beyond it. Um, and so um, I hope that during that second session, um, we'll have people that will be open to, to hear that as they listen to people's um, stories. Um, and then the third um, session is uh, a look under the chuppah, um, which is um, what, what does a same-sex uh, wedding look like um, from, a, from a religious perspective? Um, it's not kiddushin in the classical sense. Um, in fact, in our research for this, um, even Kiddushin raises all sorts of questions, even if you want to be egalitarian, because Kiddushin is not a egalitarian um, ceremony. Um, even if you add, as many conservative rabbis do, a double ring ceremony. Um, but um, but uh, we don't think that Kiddushin is applicable to um, to same-sex weddings, so we're adopting the Brit Ahavim, the covenant of, of uh, loving partnership um, that uh, the rabbinical assembly, uh, members of the rabbinical assembly have put together. So what does that look like, and how is it similar and different than, um, uh, than um, you know, classical Jewish weddings? Melissa, do you, uh, did you consider looking at synagogues when you were getting married? And was it like a thing where you were like, oh, there's no real big synagogues that are doing this, so I guess I have to go to a hotel or something? Yeah, well, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting because I, I come from a very welcoming congregation, so shout out to, uh, to Habonim in, uh, in Toronto. So there was never any, uh, any questions, but I've been involved in, uh, in the Jewish community in advocacy for a long time, and I had a number of rabbis say, like, how come you didn't, you know, how come you didn't call me? We, we, we would have we done this. So that was, uh, you know, that was an overwhelming response, and, uh, and rabbis I, I can give you a, a video for a tutorial of, uh, of what that looked like for, uh, uh, for us because I, I think that this is a, this is a great move um, for the congregation for you know, something so traditional in the community as, as, uh, as Beth Sedek to celebrate um, families and Judaism and uh, you know, allowing more people into the fold to celebrate their, uh, their Judaism in, uh, in the way that, uh, that is meaningful to them. So uh, Kalkavad to you. Thank you. Um, so just to, to, you know, to sort of like uh, bring it all back. So the, at the end of the day, the, it's not a new idea, right? It's really just something which it's like, as you said, it's time has come. Uh, it's time to move forward. And you're doing this because it's right, because it's the, the thing to be moving. Uh, this is the right direction to be moving in anyways. Um, what's on the horizon beyond that? You know, it, it, going even beyond LGBT inclusion, um, you, you said that the entire package of inclusion is there. Um, what, what's, can you give us a peek behind the curtain of what's, uh, what, what's in the discussion table these days for how, how to be more inclusive? And well, so we, we need to um, uh, find a way to invite uh, more members of the LGBTQ community and allies. We, I, I'd like to see us form two I don't like the word committees anymore because committee, like, you know, has a connotation of 1950s of sitting around a table talking policy. In Limud, when, when I chaired Limud in Chicago, we uh, we weren't allowed to call things committees because that's a Limud uh, anti, like it's a bad word in the Limud world. Yeah. And so yeah. we used to call ourselves the steering wheel. 
instead of the steering, the steering wheel. Yeah. Yeah. So like, you know, working groups, it's like, I, I think that there's, there's work to be done. First and foremost, there, there are some specific needs that the community has that um, we need guidance from them as to what those needs are and how we can, we can meet them um, within the synagogue within synagogue life and Jewish world, you know, um, pastoral needs, um, conversations, you know, what, whatever that is. So we need, we need guidance from, from the community as to um, what they need specifically that relates to their, um, their circumstance. Um, and then we need uh, a group of allies and community members to keep working on, um, on uh, raising awareness and, and education. I don't want to do... I, I don't want to like you know have the poster you know Pride Month kind of thing. It, it should be things as part of the regular cycle of our calendar, um, where it's normative and not like you know a special month. Um, so that so so that's the other thing that 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 you know we want to do. Um, COVID's made that harder um, because we can't like really you know it's just made it harder but so i think those those are the two things that that we need to see happen and, and we need to you know i think keep with the training uh of the staff and and lay leaderships of uh of sensitivity and addressing you know microaggressions and biases and um and so forth and i think that it's the same thing we have a, a racial justice task force um where we're we're working on the on the same thing, and this is a direct, a direct uh, result of Black Lives Matter over the summer. Um, and um, uh, you know, I spoke about this on uh, on Kol Nidre. Uh, if you want to see it, it's available on our website. Um, I spoke about this on Kol, Kol Nidre, but it's the same thing. We have, you know, the, the Jewish community is not monolithically Ashkenazi, white, straight. Um, you know, it's not. That's not who we are. We are actually a very, very diverse community, and we have. Um, we have people in our shul and in Toronto that are Jews of color, um, uh, adopted children, converts to Judaism, people who come from, from um, you know, uh, Israel, Ethiopian um, Israelis, and you know, we have the whole gamut, um, and uh, we need to address we need to address that. Um, what what I would say is is that like you know what what the future is is that we've really identified. Um, this mission and vision of being a place of inspiration and enabling our community to live meaningful Jewish lives. We've identified six core values as it relates to that, um, to be a caring community, to make sure people are connected to each other, uh, to be um, a place of, uh, of spirituality and prayer, um, a place of uh, life cycle and celebration, a place of Jewish learning and growth, um, not just not just the acquisition of uh, chapter and verse, but how does our study of Torah impact um, our behavior and our choices? Uh, and to be a place, um, we call it give and get, um, which is uh, our community. We want people to understand that it as an institution and our members have a responsibility to the larger world. Um, we want people involved in, in UJA. We want them involved in Limud, in Camp Ramah, um, in Jewish day schools. Um, uh, we want people to, to be involved in social justice programs. We're doing a lot right now in terms of food insecurity and homeless, um, uh, but uh, racial justice as well. Um, so we want, we want people like, you know, to, to take, take these Jewish values and, and apply them in the world. 
um, in all the different concentric circles, starting with their lives, the congregation, the Jewish world in the GTA, the GTA, Canada, Israel, the world. The big vision. I'm curious. <laughs> that sounds amazing. You talked about the diversity of Canada, which is very, very true. And I'm wondering if looking at the other synagogues in the world that have adopted this policy of being more open and conducting same-sex marriages within the Jewish community, if there's um, been some kind of numbers associated with Jews from other denominations switching to the conservative movement in order to be able to partake in these kind of initiatives. Is that something that you're expecting or trying to engage with? So I don't, I don't know the answer to that question. I know that when one looks at the demographic data um, that um, looks at denominational affiliation. Um, in Canada, conservative Judaism is the largest denomination followed by orthodoxy, followed by reform, um, which is fascinating. Um, coming from the United States, where it's, where it's actually in the United States now, it's just Jewish, followed by reform, followed by conservative, followed by orthodoxy. And in the U.S., conservative has lost you know, in the 1980s, it had 33% of the Jewish population. Today, it's like 18%. Um, and there's a lot of reasons for that and so forth. But I personally, I, you know, I'm, and as someone who used to lead the conservative movement in North America, um, I, I think the denominational discussion is not the right conversation. Um, you know, uh, the, the denominations exist only to support a Judaism. So I'm more interested in talking about what are the values of concerted Judaism and how do we support them, both from the people who will um, readily identify as your core supporters um, and then also reach out to, to marginal supporters and others. Um, I, the, the, the conversation today, I think, needs to be about Jewish meaning and impact um, and not about membership. Right? It's, it's, not about, it's not about membership, it's about meaning, it's not about program, it's about purpose. Uh, and at Beth Sedek, um, every, every program, every activity that we do, we're asking ourselves, what's the relational question that we're trying to get to um, by which we can connect people? Um, how are we caring for people? Um, and how are we helping them um, discover another opportunity for adding meaning to their lives? Um, and that, that's, that's what we're focusing on in Bethsedic and in our little corner of the world. So far, we've been wildly successful about that, even during COVID. Um, and, uh, and we expect that once COVID passes, we're actually in a position um, to have some really exciting um, exponential growth. Amazing. Um, so the, the, the learning sessions are going to be three uh, consecutive Monday nights starting this coming Monday. Starting this coming Monday night. We'll put the links up in the show notes for those of you who want to watch it. So the first one is with yourself. Then we have Yaakov Fruchter and we have Rabbi Robin Fryer Bodzin on the third right. one. Um, excellent. We look forward to it. Thank you so much for coming on here. Pre-registration is required, but you don't have to be a member to pre-register. Okay. There you go. Um, thank you so much, Rabbi Stephen. And uh, we'll uh, hopefully catch you again uh, in the future for uh, other good things. Anytime. Excellent. Thank you. That was great. Now, um, before we move on to our Nachas of the Week, let's hear about our other sponsor. Securisher is the leading dealer in TELUS by ADT Security in Canada. They will protect your home or business from coast to coast with rates as low as $27 a month for a complete security system with camera. 
All installations are virtual. They send you an installation kit and they have technicians on the phone and online to guide you through the process at your convenience, regardless of time zone. Use the promo code CHI to get a bonus offer at no extra charge. That's promo code CHI when you contact them via their website at www.secureassure.ca. That's S-E-C-U-R-Assure.ca. Or email them directly at info at secureassure.ca and use CHI in the subject line. Again, visit secureassure.ca and use promo code CHI for a very special offer. Let's move on to our Nachas of the Week, where we'd like to highlight something which has come across our radar and giving you some Nachas as Jewish Canadians. Alana, what's been giving you nachas? You know what? I just discovered some of the other podcasts that are being produced by the CJN, and I have to say, I'm really loving, uh, these are a few of my favorite Jews. I love the title, I love the theme music, but I just love the concept. I feel like as uh, a Jewish person watching TV, I'm constantly Googling, is blank Jewish, and then sending it to my mom, and it's getting really, really excited. So I, I really like the concept. I listened to the first episode the other day, and I thought it was super fun. Right now, I have to say, I think my favorite Jews are Abby and Ilana, uh, not just because we share a name, and though I do love that because before uh, Broad City came out, nobody knew what my name was, and now they're like, oh, I get it. You're like Ilana from Broad City. I'm like, yep. Uh, yeah, I've been getting really into that show. You? Anyway, I'm pretty excited about that podcast. Well, I'm, you know, uh, this is a bit different, but the matzah hoarding is uh, is starting in the in the grocery store. I'm not somebody that attends uh, gatherings at uh, at grocery stores, or frankly even goes there that often. But it's hard to believe the Passover is uh, almost upon us, and we might again be relegated to doing this online. But I read a uh, I read an article, uh, hug it out, a little hug it for kids. It's staying on the on the inclusion thing uh, that we're talking about this episode. It's a new hug it for kids written by. Uh, Toronto uh, mother and daughter Pearl and uh, Maxie Richmond that emphasizes inclusivity and like it they say these guys say it's a love letter to to children I just found that so beautiful and it's anchored by tradition and it explores ideas of uh, diversity and empathy and I think that we could use a little bit of that in the world it introduces new concepts um, that are sometimes kind of hard to uh, to talk about particularly with kids like feminism poverty the Holocaust um, and it's a reflection of like what actually is happening in the world today and that's not a bad thing um, and here's my favorite part of it um, it is the Seder ends in singing of Hatikva, and I think any time that we can make kids more, uh, you know, more Zionist, uh, the better. So Kalkava to uh, to to the Richmond duo for for this big thing. I'm going to get a copy uh, and I'm going to spread it around. Wow, uh, wait. So this Hagada is called the Hug It Out Hagada. Yeah, is that amazing? Oh, that's a great title. I love it. I love it. Uh, I got to get myself a copy. I love collecting Haggadahs. Um, I'm sure we'll talk more about Haggadahs and my Haggadah obsession in future weeks. Um, but that's uh, that's great. I love this it. This is I'm something I didn't know about you. I, I didn't know that you had a Haggadah a uh, obsession at all. So I, I, I look I like, forward to, to diving into that. So I have like I have like dozens, you know, probably less than 50. But uh, this 50? Probably less than 50, but definitely oh, more than 30. Than <laughs> Um, That's a lot a, of Haggadot. Please, I have a, there's somebody I know in Chicago who has the world's largest collection of Haggadot. Um, we're talking multiple thousands of volumes. Um, that's, that's become his thing. He has, you know, probably the greatest collection of Haggadot uh, in the world. Uh, it's really fascinating to see. But um, yeah, Haggadot, Passover's coming. Uh, get your Amazing. dust off your Haggadahs. Um, interestingly, my um, my Nachas of the Week is actually also a kid's book. Um, Seagal Samuel, who is a friend of the program, uh, 
wrote a book. Uh, she's a, she's actually a staff writer at Vox, but she's originally a Montrealer. Uh, she wrote this wonderful book called The Mystics of Mile End, but she just came out with a book called Osnat and Her Dove, the true story of the world's first female rabbi. Um, it's about a young Iraqi woman um, several hundred years ago who uh, became a Torah scholar and was, in her, in uh, Seagal's opinion and history's opinion, likely the first woman to be uh, trained and treated as a rabbi. Um, and this is written as a kid's book, wonderfully illustrated. I highly recommend it. It's available. Um, it is the number one release in children's uh, Jewish Jewish children's books on Amazon. Um, go check it out. Osnat and Her Dove by Sigal Samuel. I loved it. Um, and we all, like I said, we like Sigal here. I'm into it. Excellent. Pump up the uh, kids book collection. For sure. I mean, I am married to a to a female clergy member. So, uh, you there know, you I'm a rabbi and a rabbitson. Um, that, that's, that, that's my claim to fame. Um, so I kind of had a vested interest in this book, but it, it's excellent anyways. So uh, before we close out, we'd like to take a moment to hear from a dear old friend of the show, Melissa Alana. Is it important to hear from Bubbies? But Bubbies, oh, yeah. totally. Bubbies know everything. Definitely. What do you think? Let's take a moment to hear what Bubby Golda has to say. There are lots of things going on in the news. In all of Canada, for all of the Jews, you might need some help to digest the press. Here's what Bubby Golda says. Bonjour. Hi. My name is Bubby Golda, and today... I'd like to talk to you about modernizing the Jewish view of homosexuality and encouraging rabbis to officiate same-sex marriages in Canada. Why is there still resistance to making this change? When the Bible talks about homosexuality being an abomination and in the same category as incest and bestiality, oy, please, there are lots of inhumane, outdated guidelines we don't follow from the Bible anymore for good reason. Like stoning people to death for not believing in God. Huh, can you imagine? And the point about how sperm should only be used for procreation. Now, don't lie to Bubby. Do all of you always use spermalach to have kinderlach? What I believe is really going on here is discomfort. It is time to look into the deep crevices of your kishkas. What you might find is bad old-fashioned homophobia and fear of the other. Look, allowing the LGBTQ plus community members the right to marry will have no effect on what you do in your bedroom and does not devalue your marriage. So please, just let my people go already and let them enjoy the same freedoms as everyone else. In Judaism, we preach the concept of loving our neighbors and showing compassion. Let's practice what we preach. We as Jews know what it's like to be a minority and to be discriminated against. If anything, this should make us more empathetic and understanding towards others who find themselves in the same situation. The Jewish people have lived for thousands of years throughout so much persecution and hardships. And how did we survive? We stuck together, supported each other by strengthening our community and because we adapted to change. The same must apply here. So thank you, Rabbi Wernick, the Beth Tzedek congregation in Toronto, and to any other rabbi who will officiate these weddings. You are truly a light unto other nations. And mazel tov to all the newlyweds out there. Remember to always lead with love. May you all be well, zeigesund, and may you all get vaccinated against the fakakta COVID.
Thank you for listening to what Bubby Golda says. Bubby's, Bubby's that, that fakakta COVID. Wow, 100%. that music though, so catchy. Bubby's are always right. We said it at the beginning. My, my, uh, I, I had somebody say recently, says, if COVID was a person, I'd run over it yeah. five times. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, thank you for listening to Bonjour Chai for Thursday, March 4th. Our producer is Michael Freeman. Technical production is by Andre Goulet. Bubby Golda is a creation of Adina Katz. Our music is by SoCalled. We are a project of the Jewish Living Lab and are distributed by the CJN Podcast Network. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please leave a comment and a rating on the platform of your choice. Let us know what you think about what we've spoken about today uh, at the CJN Lounge on Facebook. Join the CJN Facebook group called the CJN Lounge. Uh, We'd love to hear from you. We're all following those discussions there. I'm Avi Feingold in Montreal. I'm Melissa Lansman in Toronto. And I'm Ilana Zakon in Vancouver. 